in the big rock candy mountains You never change your socks And the little streams of alcohol Come a-trickling down the rocks The brakemen have to tip their hats And the railroad bulls are blind There's a lake of stew and a whiskey too You can paddle all around them in a big canoe In the big rock candy mountains In the big rock candy mountains The jails are made of tin And you can walk right out again As soon as you are in There ain't no short-handled shovels No axes, saws, or picks I'm a-goin' to stay where you sleep all day Where they hung the Turk that invented work In the Big Rock Candy Mountains This is Our American Stories And now, Jesse Edwards brings us the story of a desk Unlike any story of a desk that you've ever heard before August 24th, 1814 marks one of the darkest episodes in the War of 1812. On that day, British troops marched on Washington, burning public buildings, including the U.S. Capitol. Among the losses in the Capitol were the Senate chamber and all its contents. Reconstruction took until 1819, and when senators again took their seats in the rebuilt chamber, they occupied 48 new desks and chairs custom-made by Thomas Constantine, a New York cabinet maker. Constantine was paid $34 for each Senate desk and $46 for each chair. Today, all of Constantine's desks remain in use in the current Senate chamber, although his chairs have been replaced. As new states entered the Union, desks of similar design were ordered from other cabinet makers, although the four newest desks, those constructed for Alaska and Hawaii, were built in the Senate cabinet shop. There are noticeable differences in shape and dimension among the 100 desks. These result from the original semicircular arrangement in the old Senate chamber. A desk's shape reflected its position in the room. Aisle desks were narrow and angled, while the center was wider and square. If the oldest were arranged in the original layout, it is believed they would have formed a perfect semicircle. Many traditions pertaining to the Senate desks have evolved over the years, and each new class of senators that occupies them contributes to their heritage. Through careful documentation and diligent preservation, this rich legacy will be maintained for future generations. But there is one Senate desk unlike any of the others, and you wouldn't know by looking at it. Next to the eastern door to the Senate chamber, the first desk on the right in the last row of desks they call it the candy desk it all began on the republican side of the senate in 1968 when senator george murphy of california who had an insatiable appetite for candy started stocking his desk full of sweets that he would often share with his fellow senators The tradition has continued ever since and has even become a point of pride for the select few who preside over the candy desk. Senators John McCain and Rick Santorum have both sat in the coveted desk. The current and 16th tenant of the candy desk is Republican Senator from Pennsylvania, Pat Toomey. Since Hershey's chocolate is based in Pennsylvania, Senator Toomey gladly shares candy from his home state. Well, I am happy to be carrying on a great Senate tradition. It's the tradition of the Senate candy desk. For 50 years now, one desk on the Republican side of the aisle, the first desk that senators pass as they walk into the chamber, 
has been the official candy desk. And there's no state that should occupy this desk more than Pennsylvania because we are America's leading confectioner. We have more candy companies than any other state. We have 10,000 people working in this industry, and it's just a terrific industry, and I happen to really like Three Musketeer bars, so I'm delighted to play this role. Sugar. strange thing is, according to Senate ethics rules, Senator Toomey and anyone who bears the responsibility as keeper of the candy desk is required to place only candy that originates from their home state into said candy desk. You see, every candy company in the world would love to have their candy inside the Senate candy desk. Think of it as a form of lobbying, because that's exactly what it is. Now, you might think that keeping a desk full of candy wouldn't be this complicated. But the rule states that senators are not allowed to accept donations of more than $100 per year. The loophole is that this rule does not apply if the donations are manufactured in that senator's home state. Now get this. If you wanted to add your brand of candy to the already existing pool of U.S. Senate Candy Desk Candy, your company and all the other companies that want to donate must first be represented by the National Confectioners Association. The trade organization that advances, protects, and promotes chocolate, candy, gum, and mints, and the companies that make up the $35 billion U.S. confectionery industry. The Democrats have also had a candy desk since at least 1985, a roll top located on the front wall belonging to the United States Senate Democratic Conference Secretary Tammy Baldwin from Wisconsin, is also filled with sweets. However, the Democrats manage their candy desk on the honor system. Not to get all political, but it's interesting to see the way each side of the aisle chooses to distribute candy differently. On the right, candy companies pay lobbyists to help get their sweet sugary product into the gaping maws of the Senate body. On the left, it's a communal dish where people can pay as they wish. On the right, they find loopholes around ethics rules in order to maximize the quantity and quality of candy that makes it into the desk. On the left, the most popular candy was the plain old Hershey's Kiss. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Hershey's Kisses are one of the most popular brands of candies in the U.S. with more than 60 million produced each day at the company's two factories. The Hershey Company ships roughly 100 pounds of chocolate and other candy four times a year to fill the candy desk. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great story, Jesse. I know a lot about Congress and American history. I did not know anything about the candy desk, and I feel like a really terrible boss. (laughs) And so he did a quick poll. The Our American Stories candy desk will be stocked with, well, Sour Patch Kids for Faith, Jelly Bellies for Greg, Peanut butter M&M's for Stan, huh? Skittles for Jesse. Good and plenty for me. Well, for my wife, when she comes in occasionally, some Snickers, the little baby Snickers. And for Reagan, my beautiful daughter, Kit Kats. And of course, Alex, well, he's not here. This is Our American Stories. The story of the candy desk.
This is Our American Stories, and we tell a lot of joyful ones here on this show, but we don't shy away from the tough ones. And boy, is this a tough one. One morning in a suburb of Atlanta, two families, the Mannings and the Abrahams, living just 18 houses apart, lost two beloved sons to the synthetic opioid fentanyl. An amount equal to two or three grains of salt can kill. And over 64,000 Americans died of drug overdoses in 2016 alone. 20,000 of them came from drugs like fentanyl. That fentanyl number was just 3,000 three years earlier. That's a 540% increase, according to the New York Times. We want to get past the numbers, though, and introduce you to families like the Mannings. They're folks we'd be proud to have as friends and people who never thought they'd lose a son to drugs. You know, we were perfect people to say it wasn't going to happen to our kids. It's not going to happen to my child. You know, look, he was popular. He was an athlete. He was good looking. He had lots of friends. He was homeschooled. He grew up in the church. He was a person that told me at the age of six that he wanted to be a minister. Um... How could that happen to my kid? Her kid, Dustin, was 19 years old when he died. And that's Lisa Manning, who, along with her husband, Greg, is trying to help other parents recognize the drug threat facing us today. As Greg puts it, Whatever a kid wants, they can get within 20 minutes. $20 in 20 minutes, they've got it. $20 in 20 minutes, and they've got it. By the way, we took you into a Senate hearing room a few weeks back. If you didn't catch that, Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we heard from the heads of Customs, ICE, the FBI, all these folks working on interdiction. These drugs are being shipped via the Internet directly to families' homes, and they're using the U.S. Post Office to do it. To better understand what the Mannings have gone through, let's go back to when they met in the early 90s. Each was hanging out with their own friends at the same country bar, and Greg came so very close to missing his one and only chance with Lisa. I spotted him. He was coming back from the bar and asked if I could buy him a drink. And he looked at me and he had like three drinks in his hand. He looked at me like, are you crazy? I already have a drink. So he said no and walked by me. And I'm like, what a jerk. I was walking back over there, looked over there again, and she was still there. And I, I, I kind of was questioning my my move there. I was questioning why I, I did that. And so I, I went back over and talked to her. He looked at me and kind of mouth do you want to dance and that's kind of where we started so we danced and been together ever since got married in 96 and we wanted to kind of wait a couple years to have kids but on our honeymoon I got pregnant so our daughter was born in 97 when she turned a year we were going to have another one or try and January of 98 we immediately started trying and got pregnant pretty quick so um, that was pregnancy with Dustin He was born in April of 99. He was a feisty child. You know, my daughter was very quiet and she slept a lot. I mean, she was a good napper and Dustin was totally opposite. Soon the Mannings had another boy and the family spent a lot of time together. I decided to homeschool my kids when they got school age, mainly just because we were very involved in the church and I wanted to have a say of what my kids were gonna learn. I wanted to teach them their schooling in a kind of a Christian environment. You know, they learned how to write Bible verses. That was what they first really was, they were writing. 
All of this helped to shape Dustin into a loyal and fearless boy. He was five or six years old and uh, playing ball like they always did. There was a little, uh, little Indian kid that lived next door to us, Neil. Some of the other kids, you know, as they would at that age, would pick on him. And he was my daughter's age, so he was older, and there were some older kids down there. But Dustin went out there. Uh, he was out there playing and told him, hey, you, you know, leave him alone. He's my neighbor, and he's my friend. So uh, that was, you know, at the early age like that, that's that's the kind of thing you think, okay, well, I'm, you know, I'm, we're doing something right here. The kids, he's got some good values. But young Dustin struggled with his own emotions. His dad remembers how hard the young man was on himself. As I would drive him to and from the baseball games and the football games, a lot of times, if they didn't turn out well, if he didn't have a good game or something, I knew early on that I couldn't get on him because he was, he was on himself. And so most of the drives back were, hey, don't, you know, don't take it so hard. It's, not, it's, it's a game. You know, if you did your best, you're fine. Don't worry about it. But he always really took it to heart, and uh, he was either uh, – in. As time went on, he ended up either being quarterback or uh, linebacker or some type of leadership position on the, on the field. And he, he would feel like he'd not only let himself down, he let the team down. As Dustin grew older, his dad remembers the boy reaching legend status among friends by getting three dates to homecoming in a single year. But hidden from his parents at first, Dustin began to use alcohol and drugs. Maybe it was to fit in maybe to numb his intense emotions. But it started the family on a roller coaster ride that they're now trying to help other families avoid. It was his uh, sophomore year. It was a football game and a bunch of him and his, his football and baseball buddies were all caught drinking at the football game. We were really upset about it and we really wanted the police to take him off and put him in jail just to kind of teach him a lesson. That was kind of what our thought process was. and. That was probably when we first started. We saw something, but we didn't think it was anything. We just thought teenagers, you know, drinking. Well, we we drank as teenagers, so, you know, can't expect them not to. And we just kind of left it at that. We really didn't think anything of it until the following year when we were at a family gathering. It was over the summer. And my husband kind of knew. He just, he felt like Dustin was probably on something. We'd gone to my brother's for a, a little family get-together. He, he was off by himself, and he just, he didn't look right. He wasn't acting right. It wasn't what he said or he did. He was just, you could see in his mannerisms, you know your own child. And so when we got home and confronted him, he, he finally came clean and said, yeah, I've been doing this, that, and the other, which was everything. And I knew my my sister had gone to Peachford, and I knew right off the bat that was a detox center. So Lisa and I talked about it and said, let's, you know, we get we got to start this process. If he's gone that far that quick. We took him in that night, and he was there for about five days. And he came out right when school was getting ready to start. So we were thinking, okay, he's good. He's, you know, detox. He's not going to do it again. He's learned his lesson. He can start school, start his sophomore year, and... You know, everything will be great. Three of us were talking, him, his dad, and myself were talking outside on the front porch one night. It might have even been the night before school started. He made a comment like, I, I'm really scared about going to school. 
I remember thinking he's scared because he doesn't want people to talk about him, him, him being impeached for it. He probably thought the word got out. But I think looking back now, it was because he knew he, he knew he wasn't right. Just because he was in this Peachford Center for five days, it didn't mean that he was fixed. But, you know, my husband and I didn't, we didn't think that because no parent wants to think that there's something wrong with their child. I mean, what could be wrong with our child? He was athletic. He was very sociable. He was very outgoing. He was homeschooled. He grew up in the church. He was involved heavily in the youth group. You know, what could possibly be wrong with our child? And we hear that from so many addicts and families. Detoxing physically is hard enough, but dealing with the emotions and the insecurities that make addicts want to numb everything with drugs in the first place, boy, that's tough. And throw in the shame, and that's even tougher. And that's the real struggle. Dustin soon went through a second rehab, then a third. The third program was in Louisiana, far from the dealers that Dustin knew, and there... He seemed to find his footing. He got a job and he was doing landscaping and tree removal and he was really doing well and he was working towards getting the GED. He took the little pretest that they gave him and when he went to get the results, the lady said, the only thing you have to take is math because you've tested out of everything. And she's like, I've never had it. I've never seen a kid do that. So that was kind of a feather in his hat because he felt like he was really, he was smart because he never felt smart. Even though I knew he was smart and his dad knew he was smart, he never felt smart. And he loved Louisiana. He said, I I would think I want to stay here. I want to, you know, make a living here. And about two weeks after we left, they had a really bad storm and it flooded Louisiana. And the treatment center that he was living at got flooded school he was supposed to take his test got flooded so the test was postponed until further notice well that just destroyed Dustin he was like every time he felt like he was getting a couple steps forward it felt like he took 10 steps backward each time and when we come back more of the story of Dustin Manning his mom and dad Greg and Lisa and so many families struggling with this epidemic this is our American Stories And we continue with the story of the Manning family in our continuing series called American Carnage, the Opioid Crisis in America. Dustin had been doing well at that rehab in Louisiana, away from home, away from all the familiar drug dealers, the familiar habits. But a storm flooded everything and turned Dustin's world upside down all over again. One of the guys he was in treatment with left the treatment center and went down to New Orleans and tried to commit suicide. He jumped off a parking deck and pretty much broke every bone in his body but didn't kill him because he hit a branch on the way down. So when Dustin heard this, that made him spiral down even more. And one of the guys he was in treatment center with here in Georgia, he found out did kill himself, he shot himself. So 
all this stuff was happening to Dustin within a three-week period, and he just, he couldn't take it. He um, decided he was going to just leave and come home and try to figure his life out. So he left Louisiana, found bus tickets, and slept in bus stations, and I kept in contact with him that whole night that he was making his way back here. People were offering him dime bags at the bus stations, and he said, Mommy, because I didn't want it, because I don't want to go back into drugs. I just, I want to, I want to get my life right. And so I was proud of him, because he could have easily relapsed on that trip back home, and he didn't. I want to get my life right, young Dustin said, and anyone who's had anyone in the family struggle with drug addiction knows these words. Once home, Dustin seemed to find a solid footing at first. He was looking for a job. He was going to work on getting his GED. I mean, he was he was headed in the right direction. And then September 14th, his dog died, and suddenly um, that sent him kind of in a spiral downward again. And two days later, he told us both that he can't be here. He has to leave. He has to hit rock bottom. And he walked out. We didn't know where he was. We didn't. We tried calling him. We tried people getting people from the treatment center that we knew he was close with, both in Louisiana and here, to contact him, and he wouldn't. He wouldn't pick up his phone. Of course, our biggest fear was he's gonna he's gonna die. And Saturday morning, I got a phone call from a friend of mine who asked if I heard from Dustin, and I said, No, I don't know where he is. And she said, Well, he's down the street from us. And he's in the backyard smoking pot. So I asked her for the address, and she gave it to me. And I called the cops, and I told them, I said, I want to send a report of some of some kids smoking pot in the backyard. And so she took down the number, and and she said, you know, do you know these people? And I said, one of them's my son. I said he's been gone since last night. And she said, are you putting, are you filing a missing persons report? And I said, no, because I know where he is. I just want the police officer to go find him, and if he's got something on him, I said I want him arrested, so he can't hurt himself, and nothing can hurt him. And sure enough, about two hours later, the police called me and said, uh, you know, your son's here, and I can bring him in, and have him you know go to jail or you can come get him and I said nope I said take him in I said I I think he's safer there that was Saturday he got arrested we went to see him on Tuesday and he told us he was on Xanax he was on acid he was on uh, meth because meth was his drug of choice he had done every single drug that night within a 23 hour period except for heroin he hadn't gotten into heroin yet I remember him telling me he didn't want to do heroin because he was afraid he'd die but he was okay to do everything else. He said that he wanted to get back into treatment. And he did phenomenally well. He kept getting sponsors. He was becoming a leader. He was counseling and leading the new guys that were coming in. He was doing great. And he uh, came home for Thanksgiving. And we had the best time we've had in a couple years. He got a job in January and met the girl that he loved at this job and um, he decided to get a tattoo and that was kind of against the rules at this treatment center. They found out about it, he got in trouble and he decided that he didn't want to be in that treatment center, that he was doing really well and he felt like he could make it on his own. So he asked to leave the treatment center and he came home and we let him come home um, with a lot of stipulations. We would be given a random drug test and um, 
you know, we would we would work with him to get his GED and get his license, but he had to follow our rules. And he was he was okay with that. He said, Molly, I know I'm in a better place. I don't want to do drugs. I know I'm doing good. He said, I just, I'm ready to, to do better. And so he, uh, you know, it's this addiction. Um, it, it gets the best of him. And he just, he had a hard time coping with anything that life threw him. I don't know what got him back into getting the drugs again, but he discovered heroin. And um, he just he just asked for a little bit of meth to take the edge off. When apparently the guy, he usually gives him the meth, said, I don't have meth, but I have something else. And didn't tell him it was heroin. Dustin didn't ask, apparently. Um, Dustin tried it, and it was heroin, and he loved it. And you know, the addicts always say, you're trying to get that initial high. Every time you try something new, it's because you're trying to find that very first high that you got years ago. Because we were drug testing him randomly, he cleaned up and got his GED and got it on May 20th. That was the last test he took and passed it. And so now he's back to where he's feeling like he can accomplish something. And we started talking about college and how he wanted to get into remodeling again and maybe take some um, trade classes, maybe electrician, maybe plumbing, just whatever. I remember the day he got his GED scores he came into my room and he goes, Mom, I just, I don't know what to do now. And I said, well, you don't really have to do anything, you know. I said, you're, all, your, all your classmates at school are graduating next Friday, the 26th. So you're graduating before they did, technically. I said, and this is the goal you always wanted. They're probably going to take the summer off before they do, do something. I said, so why don't you do the same thing? I said, and he was just, for the first time, I saw peace in his face and joy and happiness he was um just that saturday before he had gone to prom with his with his girlfriend who he told that night at prom that he loved her and she reciprocated and they were planning a future together she was going to uga in the fall and he was planning on visiting her and doing whatever he decided to do he was going to make sure he was with her and he was getting a life going he 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 was putting all that drug stuff behind him and May 26 came and took his life. And, well, you can't catch a tougher moment on tape. And when we come back, we're going to hear the rest of this really sad story. Our biggest fear was he's going to die. Lisa Manning had said, Dustin had a hard time coping with anything tough life threw at him. This is Our American Stories. Dustin's story continues. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to listen to our series called American Carnage, the Opioid Crisis in America. And if you have a story, please share it with us. We've done this with final thoughts. They're tough, but I think when you share it, You help not just yourself, not just your family, not just your community, but anyone in earshot of this show will feel a little bit less alone. And if we can do anything like that here, we're happy to do it. More on the Manning story after these messages.
continue with our story about the Manning family and their struggle with addiction and opioid addiction. We just heard from Lisa about her son Destin's progress in fighting that addiction. He had a job. He was in love. And he'd earned his GED a few days before his classmates were graduating from high school. But on the same Friday as the high school graduation, Dustin died of an overdose. We asked Lisa and Greg what happened in the days leading up to this. Was Dustin suicidal? No, no, I know I know for a fact he wasn't. The Tuesday before he died, he had stayed up from work because he was getting sick. And he was sitting out on the steps into the garage. And we, we were just talking in the garage. He had missed his meeting that he usually goes to on Tuesday nights because he'd been sick. And I asked him, how do you feel about not going to the meeting? He goes, well, I hate that I didn't go. He goes, but I knew I, I couldn't physically make it. And I said, why don't they have one of those meetings here in Gwinnett County? And he said, I don't know. He goes, but that's kind of my goal. He goes, I think I want to start one of these meetings here in Gwinnett County. And I said, well, how do you start something like that? And he said, I don't know. He said, I know you have to be cleaned for at least a year. And I said, well, Dustin, you were cleaned for six months. So you were halfway there. You can do a year. It's You can do that. Because I know I can, Mom. He said, I, I don't have no doubt that I can. He said, I know it's going to be hard, but I, I'm, I'm going to do it. The, um, the night before he died, Dustin had called his girlfriend, and she told me they talked to 1.30 that morning. So we know it was after 1.30 when he died. And the weird thing is at 1.41 in the morning, I woke up from a deep sleep and I was just very anxious and I restless and I couldn't go back to sleep. Eventually I did. I didn't didn't go downstairs or anything and I kind of wish now I had, but um, I have a feeling that was the moment that he died because I woke up and I couldn't go back to sleep. I get up to go to the gym every morning. I get up at 4.30 and I usually at the gym by five. And I did the same thing that Friday morning and I always look at Dustin's room that he stayed in was downstairs, right by the stairs. And I always look at that door um, every morning when I would come down, I'd always look at it. And I still look at it. I just, you know, having that image of my son not being alive in that room that morning. But I went to the gym, obviously not knowing. I get a phone call from Greg. You know, I was in a good mood. I was finishing my workout, and I answered it. I said, hey, and he, all I hear him say on the other end of the line is, oh, my God, oh, my God. Uh, I came I came down, and uh, I opened the door. And, well, I thought he was sitting on the edge of his bed. He looked like he was tying his shoe. 
uh, I said his name and I knew because yeah, he didn't respond, but I knew um, and I grabbed him. And as soon as I grabbed him, I knew he was he was cold. And I, I set him back and I, I, I looked for any sign of life that he had. And only the first thing that popped in my mind was, you know, it was the uh, overdose. So I, I I couldn't remember where the Narcan kits were. So I called Lisa. He said, where's the Narcan? And I'm like, Greg, what's wrong? And he goes, just where's the Narcan? Where's the Narcan? And the Narcan is, is the drug that they use to offset opioids. It only works right after, you know, the the ingestion. It doesn't work hours later, which, we did, of course, we didn't know how long Dustin had been out. But um, so Greg's yelling at me, where's the Narcan with the Narcan? And I told him where it was. And all he said was, call 911. I ended up being behind the ambulance that was that was um, going to our address. And so I followed them in and I pulled into the garage and I remember just thinking, you know, dear God, please let this be a nightmare. Um, And I remember thinking, I hope my son's dressed (laughs) because I know he normally, you know, either will sleep in the nude or sleep in his boxers. And I just, I was, my first thought was, I don't want him to be, you know, exposed. I walked into the room and Greg was there and he was just kind of looking at Dustin and he turned and looked at me with and the look on his face I knew and I went over and I touched Dustin and he was cold so I knew I already knew he was dead and um, I just remember looking at him and he had his my name was tattooed over his chest time stopped right then it was I can remember the way the covers wrinkled but you remember every every detail of it and it's it's to the point where you try not to remember it but you want to let somebody else know that you don't want to go through this and when we find out what our son died from, it was the fentanyl. And that's grief, folks. That's as raw as it gets. And fentanyl is a synthetic opioid originally invented for extreme pain cases that illegal drug dealers now make and mix into street drugs. This stuff, well, it's 50 times more powerful than heroin. And it has turned dabbling in drugs into Russian roulette because such a tiny amount can kill. You know, kids growing up, it, it used to be you'd be able to try pot, whatever else they may have had designs on trying and figure out for themselves, hey, this isn't for me. I don't want to do it. And uh, now with the uh, introduction of fentanyl being made in the garage by some drug dealer who could care less what that scale reads or what dosage he's putting out there, he's... It, it comes in at, at a such an economical point for them that they'll just get more. They don't care if they put a little extra in one or not. It's, it's the cheapest thing out there for them. So they're mixing this stuff up in ways that one, that'll, that'll be great. The next one, not do anything. They'll try another one, and, and that's the last one they get. What would be 
two or three grains of salt, which will kill a 180-pound human being in 20 seconds, and that's what's being produced out there. They'll make it look like your prescription Oxycontin, your prescription uh, Xanax uh, that's being taken or being uh, provided by your local pharmacist. And if you're a mom or dad, and all you can do is, is let your kid know that's you cannot take anything that is not being provided or prescribed from from anyone but their doctor because they are the only ones that if you go to your local pharmacy you know where it came from otherwise whoever up the street or your who you think your buddy is in the high school you have no idea he may have said he got it from home but he may have gotten it from the guy next door that said he got it from home and it came from the two guy two neighborhoods over that's making the stuff in his garage that he's bought a pill press on eBay. Losing Dustin to this unintentional overdose has motivated the Mannings to reach out to as many parents and children as they can. That's part of how we make sure that Dustin's death was not for nothing, that, that it might save another person's life, that whatever he went through might help some child or young young man or young woman along the way find their way or uh, not become a statistic. But the only way you can do that is through opening up and dialogue and, and let it be known that it, this is a, a nationwide, if not a universal problem. Our kids are much more uh, educated, be it cell phones or the internet now, of, of what they can do and and, and they'll research it. They'll figure out and be a little more investigative about what they can take, but they don't know what they're taking. They think they're taking codeine or something that might give them a little bit of a high, and just because it looks like codeine doesn't mean it's codeine or, in, or Molly or Xanax. And that's that conversation that has to happen between a mother and a father and the, their child because it's, it's at every school in America. There, there's not a school immune from this. The kids will be bl- brutally honest with you. They, they know. We were talking to uh, a mom and her son, and her son grew up with Dustin. Uh, we were talking about how prevalent, you know, heroin and how easy it was to get. And you know, twenty minutes and twenty dollars on a smartphone, and you can have really whatever you need or you're trying to get. You can have it. His his mom was kind of. I think she thought we were embellishing a little bit on that. And. She goes, yeah, I don't think it's as bad at where, where he's at. And I remember he turned around and looked at her. He said, no, Mom. He goes, that's about, that's about how quick I could get it. And she goes, heroin? He goes, oh, yeah. He goes, it's, it's probably easier to get than alcohol. And that's true. And for people who think this is a problem that afflicts only poor white rural areas like Appalachia, the Manning story is a wake-up call to parents across America. The steepest rises in synthetic opioid deaths this past year occurred in Delaware, Florida, and Maryland. At current rate, drug overdoses will remain the leading cause of death for Americans under 50. Driven primarily by synthetic opioids like fentanyl, drug overdoses are killing people at a rate faster than at the height of the HIV epidemic. And in the coming weeks, we're going to continue this series. Solutions is what we're going to get at, what works, what doesn't. And we've done this before, folks, in the 80s and 90s. The Manning story, Lisa, Greg, and Dustin. A sad, sad story. Here on Our American Stories. 
stories and we came across a great story in the wall street journal and the headline was mascots are getting a hall of fame and it's making benny the bull emotional and so when you get a headline like that you got to dig in and the wall street journal does so many really great americana stories on their front page that's the wallstreetjournal.com go there and subscribe wsj.com and joining us Well, we had to talk to David Raymond because, well, he's the guy behind all this. And David, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. It's great to be here. And anytime that we're talking about furry fun, um, I got to be a part of it. Well, David, to start with, you were the original Philly fanatic from 1978 to 1993. And bless your heart, if I could be any mascot anywhere, I would have wanted to be the Philly fanatic. What fun watching him or her. Was there ever a her do his or her well, thing? Yeah, yeah, there actually is. There's, there's uh, Phoebe, who is the fanatic's mother, and Phyllis, who is, um, let's just call her his special interest. <laughs> uh-huh. Very nice. And what was that? How did you audition for that job? How did you prepare for that job? Is there, is there a way to prepare for the role the way an actor would prepare for a role? Well, it's, it's funny, you know, with what we do with our business, you know, we, we find and performers, train performers, we place performers a full-time job. Um, uh, we, we help the, um, uh, the Los Angeles Clippers fill their new performer position, um, and, and we do it quite frequently. So there's a real process now, but back when I started, I was the guy that was dumb enough to say yes to having a 300-pound green furry Muppet entertain the same fans at Boots and the Easter Bunny. So... Um, I was low man on the totem pole. I was an intern from in 76 and 77 with the Phillies and 78 when they created what looked like a very bad idea on paper. Um, they needed a few things. And one of them was somebody to commit to stay for all the games. And I, I was doing that. I'm a big Phillies fan. Um, I have very good friends with the Carpenter family who, who owned the ball club before Bill Giles and his group purchased it. And, um, you know, it was a it was a dream for me to be there as an intern. I, and I was doing the worst jobs you can imagine. So I figured, you know, so what? I figured this thing will last for a couple of weeks and, and it'll be panned in the media. And but I can always say I was the guy that first put on that crazy costume that they that they threw away. So uh, so there was no plan. There was no preparation. Frankly, I had to go to the Phillies and say, what is it that you want me to do? And, and they said, go out and have fun. And when I went when I went running out of the room, after they told me that, because I thought, well, this is great. I'm getting paid to have fun. They screamed at me, G-rated fun. <laughs> they, were, they just told a college student to go have a good time, and that was his prime directive. So, um, you know, no, no real plan. It, it, we, were just, um, it, we were just throwing stuff up on the wall, and this was one of those things that stuck. And what a beautiful thing, and what a beautiful prerogative to be given. I mean, you had a clean slate. You could just about do anything you wanted to do in front of thousands and thousands of people, and you got to hang out in a ballpark. 
Oh, yeah, and, and what was even more exciting for somebody my age, you know, 20 years old at the time, um, was that, you know, I was a huge uh, baseball fan, and I was a huge Phillies fan. I got to mingle and, and mix and get to know um, the, the Phillies players and, and had some still have some long-standing friendships with them, uh, and then met the, the visiting players, even though they didn't know who I was, but they, they knew who the fanatic was, and I, it was like living a dream. And, and actually for a little bit pretending uh, like I was a member of a major league baseball team or I was like a player. So, so that was the, you know, the icing on the cake. It was, and you got, you got to see some pretty great teams. There were some really great Philadelphia Philly team, Phillies teams during that time, weren't there? Well, it was really the beginning of um, un- until 2008, um, it, it, their run. It was the beginning of the Phillies' first real sustained uh success on the field so they had the year before they had made it uh, um you know into the playoffs but got beat uh, by the dodgers and um our, our hopes were dashed once again and when the fanatic was created it started that movement into not only uh winning um you know a national league championship but uh, winning a world series so yeah. so it was really a wonderful time uh through my tenure they they made it to three World Series. They they won one and and had a number of, uh, um, you know, those National League championships. So it was really, really uh, uh, the best time uh, to you know been part of the team. Hey, did sure. you get a ring? Did you get a ring? I, I did actually. I got three yes. rings. I, I I have a World Series ring from '80, and I have the two losers rings from from '83 and '93. And uh, you know, I do a lot of public speaking. And, and I do meet and greets afterwards, and people just love to come up and see those rings, try them on, take selfies. So it, it, that has been a really fun thing for me to stay connected with the Philadelphia fans that way. So you've had a big fight with your wife. You're really bummed out or you're just hung over. How does the Philly fanatic get psyched up and just get it done? Well, you know, it's, it really is about the power of fun. It, you know, I went through, uh, you know, the I went through my marriage training program, like a lot of people could can relate to out there, and uh, I was devastated when my first marriage didn't make it, and my my mother unfortunately passed away when she was 59 from brain cancer, and those both of those times were when at the height of my work as a fanatic, and when I was going through those difficult things, I times I thought I'm not going to be able to do this. And what I found out very quickly was working in costume was the, the perfect distraction. And I discovered people were drawn to the fanatic and are drawn to mascots because it's this powerful fun. It's, it's the distraction of silly entertainment that for the moment that you're involved, you forget all your problems. So as the performer, I had the ability to be somebody completely different. So I had that distraction continuously or any time that I wanted it. So my job became one of the healthiest functions uh, for my emotion and my, you know, my, you know, for my, my mental activity. You it bet. was the best You bet. Possible. And by the way, I might add that it's a relief and release for a lot of people that go to the park, too, David. I think that's why so many people love sports. A distraction from the ordinary burdens and strains and stresses of regular life. We're talking to David Raymond. And by the way, I love your title, The Emperor of Fun and Games at Raymond Entertainment Group. And he's also the founder of the Mascot Hall of Fame. We'll get into that in a bit after these messages. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, talking to David Raymond. And we're talking about mascots. And by the way, people love their mascots. We're going to get into it in a little bit about college mascots, professional mascots, the variety, the full, the full scope. Some of them funny, some of them serious, everything from wolverines to blue hens. And we're going to cover them all. But a little bit more about you, David, and, and this idea of a Hall of Fame. Um, when did it come to you? And what were the difficulties in bringing this to light? Well, it was like, like a lot of great ideas. Uh, it wasn't mine. That's the first thing. Uh, I, I wish it was completely mine, but it was actually my, my employee, Chris Bruce, uh, had come to me after the, um, the sausages were attacked in Milwaukee. If you remember that episode where Randall Simon hit one of the, uh, one of the famous sausages over the head as it ran by the dugout uh, in Miller Park that day. And it became a big sto- news story. I was getting calls from all the major uh, um, news brands, CBS, NBC, and on, uh, Fox, uh, NPR. They all called me, wanted to know what we thought of this, this mascot abuse. And we decided to do a mascot march on the city of Philadelphia to introduce a Bill of Rights for mascots as a <laughs> kind of a silly, fun promotion. And we got so much media coverage, we did it the second year. And that was 2003, 2004. And in 2005, Chris came up to me in the office and said, hey, this is the time for us to have a mascot Hall of Fame. We've talked about it before. You know, let's leverage all this fun we've had. And that's what we did. And we inducted that first year, of course, the fanatic, the Phoenix Gorilla, and the, the famous chicken from San Diego. Yep. The three, arguably the three characters that changed, you know, the genre, the genre of mascots. And, uh, and we had, again, tremendous success. The owner of the Phoenix Suns actually came all the way from, he's a billionaire, Robert Sarver, came to Philadelphia to introduce the Phoenix Gorilla. And, and I knew when he showed up, I said, this is really tapping into a real passion. People love and believe in their mascot brands like they're real. And when they get an honor like this, they take it seriously. Um, so from that point forward, we, we've inducted 17 total uh, mascots including um, 10 pro and seven colleges. And we did a number of live inductions, both and also in front of the, the inductees crowds. And the city of Whiting called me about four years ago and said, we want you here. We're the silly little wacky city that could. And, and it's a perfect, you know, entertainment piece for us. We're building an entertainment complex. We've, we've built a beautiful uh, lakefront on Lake Michigan. It's only 30 miles South, uh, east of Chicago and um, in northwest Indiana, and it was perfect. You know, we went there, we met with the mayor, and sure enough, here we are, groundbreaking. The, the bulldozers just dug the hole the other day, and uh, in 2018, early, we're going to open the doors to the Mascot Hall of Fame. Well, I love some of the puns here. There's a lot of physical education happening there, and the fur is coming. And But the thing is, it's not just all fun and games. In the article, in the Wall Street Journal article, I'm going to read just to touch you because it's so good. Barry Anderson, who performed for more than a decade at Chicago, at Chicago Bulls games as Benny the Bull, who isn't a member of the Hall, choked up when simply talking about the prospect. I get very emotional about the work, said Mr. Anderson, who is known for his acrobatic trampoline dunks during timeouts and firing T-shirts into the crowd using a bullzooka. Benny the Bull and Tommy Hawk, the feathery frontman for the NHL Chicago Blackhawks, are considered strong candidates for the Hall this year, says David Raymond. 
And, and what I love about this is you're doing the same sort of marketing and lead up that the NFL Hall of Fame does, that the Baseball Hall of Fame does. And, and how's that working? Is the sports world and the media picking up on this each year? It, it is. We, and that's what we were taught all the way back in 2003 when we did that mascot march. Anytime you get a group of mascots together, it looks funny. So B-roll footage looks great. Um, it, it, it is funny. Um, it, it's, it's a perfect story as a kicker at the end of a broadcast. And, and we just continue to get that type of excitement. However, it's become even more emotional and connected because we're in the midst of a of a popular vote right now where you can go on mascothalloffame.com and vote on the current ballot, which, by the way, fast forward, does include Benny the Bull and Tommy Hawk, uh, as well as Slugger, Stuff from Orlando, Harry Dog from Georgia, um, and, and the Penn State Nittany Lions. So you can vote for any of those right now, and it's, it's just built tremendous passion and emotion with the constituents and the fans and, and alumni and uh, and faculty um, and people in those organizations. So um, it's been really relatively easy to do. I, I mean, the Phillies just gave us the largest grant uh, that any Major League Baseball team has done. Uh, we're going to other all other Major League organizations and asking for philanthropic support. It's, it's a nonprofit organization. Yep. Um, and we're, we're teaching STEM and STEAM principles to elementary school kids as the backdrop of the educational piece to probably what would be best described as the Disney of mascots. It's going to be an unbelievable environment for families and people want to come back again and again. It's just really a wonderful, um, wonderful facility. And we're talking to David Raymond and mascothalloffame.com is where you can go. He also runs Raymond Entertainment Group. They're in the serious business of developing and creating full character branding programs and mascots for sports teams, colleges and universities and also corporations, and actually, uh, Our American Stories, we're going to need a mascot, too. So we'll have to talk about that offline. <laughs> you know, one of the funny stories I like is, my goodness, people are really politicking for this, like the Oscars. Jazz Bear from the Utah Jazz, Bas- Jazz basketball team submitted a video in which Utah Senator Orrin Hatch extolled the mascot significance in the community, and the video ends with a camera panning out to reveal Jazz Bear <laughs> polishing the senator's shoes. That's really good. I love it, this it stuff. Is, it is good. And, you, and you know, just, it, Lee, it's interesting with the, you know, with the political climate we're in, with, um, you know, with all kinds of um, push and pull, the, whatever side that you're on, um, and, and some nastiness for sure, you know, maybe the end of some political correctness that, that cuts down on creativity. And when you see a guy like Orrin Hatch willing to, you know, have a little bit of fun in a video that's a little less reverent, and he does it because it's part of a mascot routine, that is what mascots do. It, 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 we step off of our perch for a minute and say, yeah, I can have a little bit of fun. And if, it can, if we can get somebody like Orrin Hatch to poke some fun at himself, you know, we're, we're I mean, I, as the fanatic, I, I ran into uh, Ted Kennedy and Ethel Kennedy and and, and work with all kinds of celebrities and, and politicians. And every single one of them stops for a moment, gets a hug and a kiss and a high five from, from a mascot. So exactly. it, it works. It really is powerful. Exactly. Let's talk about some of the, some of the work you do developing mascots and the like. What, what goes into that? Somebody calls you up and says, you know, we're, we're thinking about, you know, something. And I mean, how, do, how, does, how does somebody pitch you? How do you do your work? How do you do your business? Well, the first the first thing that happened. I mean, we use we use our backstory as being experts in the business in 38 years of, of being successful. That's how we get people to us. 
But when they start with us, they all want to know what it looks like. And we tell them quickly what it looks like is about fourth or fifth on the priority list. The first thing that you need to do is you need to plan for success, you know, like any other business venture. But second, the most important thing that you do is it's about storytelling. So we tell all of our clients to go back and try to develop the concept of a story that connects with their their organization, their their alumni, their fans, their community, and build a story that automatically will have buy-in from those audience uh, touch points. Uh, Disney taught that. You know, Disney said, you know, when Bambi's mother gets killed in the first few minutes uh, of that movie, you think, my gosh, this is a this is a cartoon movie done by Disney, and here's a you know a mother gets murdered in front of its of its young. Uh, how can that be Disney? Well, Disney got you to care about the characters. So for us, it's storytelling and making a flawed character that people can relate to and that they'll care about. If you do those things, you will have a wonderful, powerful character brand. And by the way, it's not always fun in games. You know, a lot of these mascots, like the great, you know, characters, the old cartoon characters like Wiley e. Coyote, I mean, they have a little devilish side and playful side to them. And sometimes there are even some fights. Talk about that line that the mascot has to draw between being too nice and being a little devilish. Well, it's, you're, you're right. I mean, it, it, tempers flare uh, when there's passion. So I, I've seen more mascot, actual real mascot fights in the collegiate environment because of, of, of how passionate and important those games are. Um, but, you know, there's occasional fan that's had a few uh, adult beverages that decides that he doesn't like the mascot uh, you know, putting his arm around his girlfriend. Um, so you, it's a sixth sense that you have, or it's common sense that you have to try to keep your wits about you. And, and, and one thing is to make sure you take breaks before you get tired, because when you get tired, you make bad decisions. But it's a dangerous environment. I mean, there's been a lot of uh, mascot injuries. So so it's not the easiest job in the world. you got to be safe and take care of yourself and, and use your common sense. You bet. And when we come back, we're going to run through a whole bunch of mascots, some of the favorites here on the show, and we're going to tell a mascot story about old Miss mascot, Colonel Reb, who was sort of put in a lockbox, and then their new mascot had to come in, and, well, nobody likes the new mascot. And what's it like to be a mascot that's not loved? That's got to be a bummer. This is Our American Stories, the Mascot Hall of Fame. More after these messages. final segment with david raymond the founder of the mascot hall of fame he also runs raymond entertainment group and that's raymondeg.com and by the way he has dave raymond's mascot boot camp which alex should go to too and see what that's like uh we want to go through some great mascots now and uh we want to tell a great mascot story as well about old mrs mascot but let's run through the two different types of mascots. They're, they're kind in the costumes, sort of the entertainment mascots, 
And there are the, there are those beloved prized animals. Um, talk about some of the great mascots you don't have at the Hall of Fame because they're actually living, or do you? Well, you know, it's, it is it is a discussion we've had. We have a criteria, believe it or not. Even even though our tongues firmly planted in our cheeks, we we do have a process, and the criteria does state that it needs to be a costumed character. So it would, uh, based on that criteria, it eliminates uh, either the, the live animals or some of the human beings. Um, but we think that there's going to be a place for those types of characters. We think there's going to be a place for the actual performers, which we're not talking about highlighting yet. Um, you know, and, and certainly some of the human characters. Uh, um, you know, Max Packin was the one who started, well, Al Schacht before him and Mal pa- Max Packin, they were the first human characters that were somewhat like clowns that entertained during baseball games uh, in the fifties. Um, and Max, you know, continued on until, um, you know, the late seventies. Uh, so, so that they, they kind of set the tone for that, that I think the chicken came after that, but great animal, like, like Uga for the university of Georgia. Um, and Harry dog happens to be the, the, the costume character that's on the ballot this year, but Uga you know, there's a long line of these revered uh, bulldogs that are actually buried uh, right uh, as part of the stadium complex where people go as a pilgrimage to see the graves of the Uggas. I mean, it's wonderful love and passion. Uh, War Eagle for Auburn is an, is another example of a of an animal mascot, and and there are there are many um, that are used in the case of stirring up the crowd or or getting this great passion. Um, behind those, and they are usually combined with a, um, you know, with a costume character a- as well. Um, Florida State was an example you brought up where, where they have the chief that comes out and puts the spear into the ground at the 50-yard line, and, and I mean, you've never heard a stadium erupt any louder than I never he heard does any that. sound like that in my life, and I thought to be that chief just once it and come onto a stadium and do that. It wow, would be phenomenal. And, yep. and, you know, and, and it's a skilled person who can ride a horse and the horse is beautiful. And and and, and I think it's a wonderful reflection, um, you know, of that uh, of that community that has agreed uh, that they appreciate that type of reverence that uh, Florida State gives them. And, and that's why they were not struck down by the NCAA's uh, requirement to do so, because, um, you know, that that Indian uh, tribe had had said this is something that's reverent and revered, and, and we appreciate that type of illustration. Yep. So, so it works. I mean, it, you know, political correctness aside, there's times when these things work because of the pure passion and understanding of the fan base. You bet. And so let's rip through, and I know you can't be partial in these matters, but talk about some of the, 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 the great characters through history and up to the present uh, in college and in pro sports uh, and, and particularly which sports do the best job at this and which sports have the most mascots is football. Does football do a better job as baseball uh, do a better job? Which sport has the most mascots? Well, I, I would, I would say that the, the, the one organization top to bottom that appreciates it, that stewards mascot brands, uh, that merchandises mascot brands, the best is the NBA. Um, and it, and I appreciate the understanding from the New York office. They 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 actually give an award out to the best NBA mascot of the year, uh, and they send people out to watch the NBA environment and uh, game ops and entertainment. They give them awards for each of those, and the, and the, every year the mascot the NBA gives uh, one of the mascots that title. 
Um, so I so I really appreciate what the NBA does. I think the lowest on the scale of those uh, um, of all of those items would be the NHL or maybe even soccer. And that's in part because the culture and the history of those sports has never been, um, I guess the best way to describe it, has never been fond of the concept of a mascot being powerful. Some of them have them, and some of them do them, do them well in the NHL, but for the most part, the culture of hockey and the culture of soccer coming over from Europe makes it difficult for mascots to be successful. Now, I say that with the fact that we are actually working with Manchester City over in the UK to work on their character brands and make them stronger. So there are some exceptions. I think in the in the history of, of mascots, I think the collegiate sector is the one um, that has created characters that maybe don't look the best in terms of a costume, but have the most support because of, of the passion. So virtually every single college, you know, from Alabama and Big Al all the way to the, the, the banana slugs. I mean, you've got, or, yep. the, or, the, or the artichokes, believe it or not, with their football team has the word chokes on the side of their helmet, yep. which, the, which their, their coach quipped it's difficult to recruit for a team when you're, <laughs> when you're nicknamed as the chokes. So, so I, I really think that across the board there will always be an illustration of a great character that's been branded well. And then at the same time, there are characters that probably should not have even been conceived. Uh, you know, Puffy the Taco comes to mind out in San Antonio for minor league baseball. Um, so, so I really think from a professional standpoint, the NBA is the best. The collegiate sector, I think, has the most history and passion, and, and they celebrate all of that. So if you go to the University of Kansas, um, you will see the story of the of the original baby Jay that was really built in somebody's basement. Yeah, uh, a young young lady who was a big fan built baby Jay, and they have the original baby Jay costume that she built in a giant case. So so it, it's kind of all over the map, um, but I think what remains is the passion um, and the celebration of of organizations that people uh, love and. And, and will revere. It's so true. Here at Ole Miss, Colonel Reb was really revered for many years. I, I think a, fo- a few folks in the faculty said that it was offensive, that some people took offense, though it was never really proven. And uh, time and time again, people would do polling, and no one found it offensive. It looked a lot like Colonel Sanders. But they just put it in a lockbox. And then they had people vote, and no one wanted to vote. And next thing you know, there's this black bear. It started running around the stadium. And, David, you have to see it because no one gives him a high five. And he, he hides half the time in the big football and basketball games. He hides because the fans don't like him. And there's nothing worse than being a mascot who's not loved at home games, David. I'm thinking yeah, well, I would take pills before well, I... Well, Lee, listen, this is perfect because, you know, I'm the expert. I'm the high-paid consultant. Yeah. So I would say this. It's not a good idea to create a, ba- a mascot that nobody likes. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty much a bad idea. Right. And last, just a last thought, the mascot boot camp. Describe it. we got about a minute left for you. Uh, describe what goes on at that boot camp. It, it's really, it started for serious performers that wanted to get better at their craft, and we treat it very much like an acting class. And there's, some, there's enormous uh, similarities to what you would do as an actor. Uh, you know, you have to know who you're portraying and what their attitudes are. Um, but what it's grown into is, is actually us starting to develop fantasy mascot camps for people who always say, man, I would love to be the fanatic. And for a day of training, uh, and then we find an event with costumes and let these, uh, and some are uh, adults into their 60s, and some are as young as seven years old. 
Um, and we, we teach them how to be safe and how to have fun. And then we put them in costumes and take them to an event. And when people come out of that, they, they tell you, like I did the first time I did the Fanatic, that's the greatest thing I've ever done. Um, never had more fun in my life. Um, you know, some, some people are dealing with, with physical maladies like, um, like autism, and, and we make them happy, too. So, so oh, David, I have, I have so many physical and mental maladies, and I want to be the Philly fanatic. So I want to come to the boot camp, and I want to take you up on that. That would be nothing would make me more thrilled than to go out in front of an audience and be the fanatic. I've been talking to David Raymond, and he's the founder of the Mascot Hall of Fame, and you can go to mascotholoffame.com. Also, Raymond Entertainment Group, that's RaymondEG.com. David Raymond, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Lee. I loved it. You bet. And this is, again, Our American Stories. We love sports. We love mascots. American stories, and we've been talking about mascots because of a terrific piece in the Wall Street Journal about the Mascot Hall of Fame. And there's nothing more American than sports and the way we, well, the way we put so much of our energy and passion into it. Some people think it's silly. I think it's just fantastic. And David Rabin had joined us for the last few segments, and he's the founder of the Mascot Hall of Fame. And it was himself, the original Philly fanatic of the Philadelphia Phillies. Now we're going to bring you one of the other mascots mentioned in that article in the Wall Street Journal, the man behind another legendary mascot known as Clutch the Bear of the Houston Rockets. And joining us now is Robert Bodwin. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on, guys. I really appreciate it. Oh, uh, you bet. And should we call you the artist formerly known as Clutch? Yeah, the deadmascot.com, the artist formerly known as clutch.com, robertbodwin.com. I answer to all these names and all these websites. Excellent. So I, love I love it. I love it. So tell us how you got to be clutch. How did this happen? You know, I think my story is very similar to a lot of professional mascots. You know, there's only about 125 guys nationwide that do this full time for a living. And I think the vast majority would kind of say that they fell into it. Uh, it's not like you set out as a child uh, to be a mascot performer uh, as a profession. Um, I didn't even know it was a profession when I started doing it in high school and then got to Delaware at the university. I grew up in the suburbs of Philly, did it for the Wissahickon High School. I was the Trojan. Um, I wore a, My face showed, and I wore body armor and painted my face and wore a kilt. And then when I got to college, I started the mascot there, the University of Delaware Blue Hen, a uh, UD character in 1993, and just kind of met some cheerleaders freshman year, told them I did it in high school, and they said, yeah, you should try out. Uh, so I did, and I, I won the role, did it in, in high school or college, and then started to realize that there's guys that did this full-time year-round as a profession. Uh, and that's kind of when I started aspiring to do it. Uh, met Dave Raymond that you mentioned earlier, who... Uh, has been on your program. He was the original fanatic. He had just retired when I started the character at Delaware, but his father was our football coach, Tubby Raymond, and uh, Dave was on the sidelines all the time. So I kind of looked up to Dave as a uh, trailblazer and, uh, you know, kind of a founder of the profession. 
Uh, and uh, then I kind of realized that people do do this and uh, started auditioning uh, for jobs come uh, the summer after my junior year and won the Rockets audition in 1995 and uh, kind of went to school to be an accountant but came out wearing fur. Unbelievable. And, uh, I spent, <laughs> spent 21 years at the Rockets. Uh, and I got to be honest with you, um, I by far, with this career by far exceeded my wildest dreams. I, you know, I first got into it to kind of be funny and goof around and be center of attention in a costume and that license to kind of break the, the rules of social engagement, invade people's space and uh, improv. But in the time that I've spent here, I've gotten to do so much more with it. We've done 1,750 school shows in front of 1.2 million Houston youth. I did a school show last year. A teacher came up to me at the end of it and said, man, that show was even better the second time around. And I said, oh, were you a teacher at the school, uh, you know, that I did the year before and transferred? And she said, no, I saw it in fourth grade. <laughs> so uh, it, it made me feel both insulted that I'm now 42 yeah. and uh, like, I, in, like I affected a generation of Houstonians with their, their education. Uh, we wrote seven different storybooks. I've traveled the globe to 12 different countries, performed on armed forces entertainment tours on military bases overseas. Uh, it's just been a wonderful experience. And uh, the Houstonians that have allowed me into their hearts over the years, I thank immensely. That's fantastic. Uh, you know, you received yeah. attention in an Internet meme that involved a man being shot down during a halftime marriage proposal at a Rockets <laughs> game in 2008 after the woman said no and stormed <laughs> off the court. Tell us what happened next. Well, um, without divulging any trade secrets, uh, some of those bits are staged, some aren't. And we kind of leave our fans guessing as to which ones are and which ones aren't. Um, I, I remember that bit well. This was back when uh, YouTube was starting to gain more and more popularity for watching stuff. And I think we got 11 million hits on that in just a week or so's time. And we started getting calls from around the globe. A, uh, a TV station in Japan did a story on it. And uh, it, was, it was a memorable moment uh, that I, I definitely consider in one of the top of my career. And really had the, uh, the crowd at first shocked and in disbelief and then kind of offended. <laughs> they were mad at that woman for saying no to, uh, to the proposal, at least publicly, and uh, created quite a, a, a stir. Well, whether it was true or not, we just, we're just, you're not going to divulge, are you? You're not giving it up, are you? <laughs> right here, you can you make know, history. You can tell I us. always say that a, a true uh, magician never reveals the secrets uh, to his trick. That is so And I true. kind of view this as, uh, as that, magic uh, and the whole craft of mascotting. You've been a craft of mascotting. Can you tell us one of the crazier things you've seen or experienced as a mascot? Oh, my goodness. There's so many. In 1998, I accidentally shot Catino Mobley in the chest with our T-shirt gun, and we haven't had a T-shirt gun at the Houston Rockets since then. Um, one of the cheerleaders was looking one way but running the other way and accidentally banged into me. And we had cheerleaders on the court to throw to the lower level because this gun, which we affectionately called the BFG, I'll let you figure out what the F stands for, uh, but the BFG was so powerful we only shot it to the upper level. And they had to throw to the lower level. Well, she's looking one way, uh, bangs into the back of me, and I'm 
in the costume, I don't see her coming, knocks me forward to my knees, sets off the gun, and I'm only 20 feet from the huddle where Rudy T is instructing the team at a timeout. The T-shirt rockets right into rockets, so to speak, aha, uh-huh, <laughs> into the huddle, drops Catino Mobley like a sack of bricks. Right there. They had to cart him off the court. You want to talk about, like, and I had no clue what happened because I'm in the costume. I just get knocked down. I heard the gun go off. I jump right back up and finish the T-shirt toss, and there's the stupid bear with his big grin painted on his face like, that. who wants a shirt? Right after I just shoot our starting forward in the chest <laughs> and knock him out of the game. Um, I've been humped by Jack Nicholson. Um, my first year on the job, we just won two championships. Jack Nicholson sitting courtside next to our owner. I go to do this routine where I act like I'm sitting on his lap and uh, bouncing up and down on his knee like a little eight-year or like a little four-year-old child would. What I don't realize is all of a sudden the whole crowd laughs hysterically. <laughs> a big, huge guffaw. And I'm like kind of scratching my head like, oh, this is funny, but it's not that funny. And unbeknownst <laughs> to me, what he had done, and the cameraman's right there, is he wraps his one arm around the waist of the bear, which is a 92-inch waist, and it's mostly dead space and padding in there. So I don't feel it. And he looks next to her at the camera, and he acts like he's thrusting into the backside of the costume. And I don't feel it because there's just hula hoops in there that give it shape. And I'm not putting any pressure on his knees. I just kind of squat, making it look like I'm sitting on him so I don't hurt anybody. And then, of course, I finish the routine out by jumping up, bowing down to him and kissing his feet because he's a big celebrity. But what it looks like is that he's, you know, kind of humped me from behind, and then I thank him for it. Um, You know, I I could go on and on about the stories. I ruined an MLK Day parade by accident one time. Uh, We do this MLK Day parade every single year. We're one of the highlights of the parade. I'm in the van. Uh, I'm in my big mascot van. I'm sitting on the hood, and I shoot off streamers one after another, cannons, streamer cannons. Well, my assistant had accidentally packed these Mylar metallic uh, streamers. Well, we're going right by the big main grandstand area and the booth with the DJ and the music and the PA announcer. And, of course, I want to lay it on thick there because that's the big, important, crowded area of the parade. And what I don't realize is most of these cannons are paper cannons, but he gives me a Mylar one that's metal, and it goes up into the air, catches onto the power lines, and blows one of the transformers out. I hear a huge explosion, and again, I'm in costume. I'm like, what the heck was that? Thinking that like a bomb went off or something, and I had no clue what it was. Well, what it was was one of the transformers, and I blew the power out for like a four-block radius, including what was powering the entire stage at the parade. So the PA, the music, everything went out the rest of the day. Oh, that's a great and job. I don't realize this until after the fact, so I'm like, oh, great, I just ruined the Martin Luther King Jr. parade. Well, what a great story. And you got about a minute left here. Tell us what it was like to win a spot in the Mascot Hall of Fame. Oh, it was great. It was uh, humbling. Uh especially because it's from a lot of the guys that do this every day for their, their career and their life, your peers, uh, not just, you know, uh, people that really know the insides of the, the profession and the daily grind of it and the, and the challenge of being creative and writing your own material, producing it, directing it, and uh, starring in it. Uh, so it was humbling. It was great. It was one of the great honors of my career. I can't wait to see them uh, finish construction on it and visit it up in Whiting, Indiana. Uh, so it, it, was, it was great. 
Well, we look forward to meeting you there. We want to be there when, when the induction occurs. We've been talking to Robert Bodwin, and he is the artist formerly known as Clutch. And you can go to robertbodwin.com and catch up with his life, where he is at. And thank you for those great, great stories, Robert. Man, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I'm doing inspirational speaking now as a career in marketing consulting. So any of your listeners out there that uh, would like to reach out to me for a speech or for some consulting help, I would love to entertain uh, a discussion with them. You bet. That's robertbodwin.com, and that's Robert B-O-U-D-W-I-N.com. The artist formerly known as Clutch, and that is Clutch from the Houston Rockets, their dear and endearing mascot. This is Our American Stories.